And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature, history, art, to philosophy and science as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Hi, it's great to be with you. I'm Dave Devil. I'm a professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. I'm joined, as always, by my colleague Liz Kelly, award-winning writer, uh, jazz singer, spiritual director, and most important, managing editor of Logos, uh, published by the University of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Today, we have a very special guest. They're all very special, but this one is one that we know very well. Michael Naughton, who is the director of the Center for Catholic Studies, technically our boss, uh, the co-chair <laughs> in Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, and the author of a number of books, most recently, Getting Work Right, and also author of a breakout article in Logos about the two Adams, uh, insights uh, from the book of Genesis, and the Jewish writer Joseph Soloveitchik on work and on the university life. Mike, welcome to the show. Uh, great to be with you, Dave. Great to be with you, Liz. For our listeners, could you uh, could you say a little bit about your background? Yeah, I um, for about twenty years here at St. Thomas, I had a joint appointment in both the business school and in Catholic studies, and I was also at one point the director of the John A. Ryan Institute for Catholic Social Thought, which is always trying to integrate the social teachings and its relationship to, particularly the active life and in particular business life. Um, I also serve on a board, a manufacturing board called Rail Precision Manufacturing. Uh, and so it's always the idea that, certainly from a Catholic perspective, uh, there's a kind of community of scholars and practitioners, you know, the active life and the contemplative life. And too often we find those things at odds, but really the deepest kind of meaning of our lives comes at their integration. And that has been largely the work that I've been trying to do uh, for the last 30 years. Well, we're talking about your both your book, uh, Getting Work Right, and that breakout article. But why don't you tell us a little bit about what the main idea is about getting work right that is the basis of both the, the book and the article? Sure. You know, the, the uh, title of the book, Getting Work Right, comes from a, uh, I give a lot of talks. And um, one way I thought was catching it is, you know, getting work right, what do you have to do? And the thesis of the book is that if we're going to get work right, we have to get leisure right. Mm. And again, this idea of we're going to get the active life right, we have to get the contemplative life right. And so it's that relationship that I want to try to get at. And um, the book was was very – I was strongly influenced by Joseph Pieper um, in his book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And it's a book I've been reading and rereading for, for many years. And what's interesting about the book, you know, if, if you think about the book, it was written in 19, uh, he wrote it in 1947. So he's writing it in Germany right after World War II. And to be quite frank, it looks like a kind of utterly irrelevant book. He writes it in Germany, which has been decimated by the Allies. Um, and you would say, you know, we don't need leisure, we need work. <laughs> right, what are you talking about right. leisure for? Mm -hmm. 
right? And and what Peeper recognized is that you, if you're going to rebuild your house, what are you rebuilding it on? And he was basically saying, maybe the reason why we got ourselves into this mess in the first place had a lot to do with work. I mean, he was very mindful of the idea on the, you know, on the gates of Auschwitz, as well as other concentration camps, was Arbat Mike Frey, you know, work makes you free. And he's like, work does not make us free. Mm. And what we need here is not simply work. That's going to get us in trouble, whether it's German Nazism, whether it's Soviet communism, or to be quite frank, whether it's American pragmatism or global capitalism. Work by itself will not solve the problem. And that's why he writes this book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And really, that's really the book is attempting to take this question of leisure and seeing it in relationship to how we see our work. So when we talk about leisure, a lot of people think about laying on the couch, perhaps leisure suits. (laughs) Leisure suits. (laughs) Um, But Peeper has a different idea of leisure. Could you... Could you give us what what that involves that isn't isn't just watching TV or uh... right right well yeah we we often see leisure as kind of an amusement um, and uh, what I often like to say the etymology of that word amusement like entertainment right but amusement um, comes from the word ah muse and the, so the muse is the muses and they were the goddesses of the of the liberal arts you put the word ah in front of it and it negates it. And actually, I think the dictionary is in, in Wiktionary that says uh, to stare stupidly at something. I mean, that's often how we see leisure. It's, of course, my wife's description of me watching television. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's it's this idea that we escape reality rather than encounter reality. Yeah. And and Peeper has his. He doesn't quite put it in exactly these ways, but he comes close. He says it's 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 the leisure is an attitude of the mind, the condition of the soul that fosters the capacity to receive the reality of the world. Mm. You know, and Pope Benedict was was heavily influenced by Pieper, and he talks about this idea of the primacy of the receptive, mm. right? It's the ability to receive reality. And, of course, we live in a world that everything's, you know, all reality is constructed, you know, whether it's religion, whether it's our gender, whether it's anything. But this idea of leisure is not about constructing reality, about but about receiving reality. And so for Pieper, this idea of receptivity can certainly be found in education, but at the heart of it, it's found in worship, it's found in celebration, it's found in silence, right? It's found in all these things that provide us the kind of the deepest realms of our reality. Certainly the active life is important and Pieper does not denigrate the active life, but you can't get to that active life without first getting to the idea about what you're receiving. And that's and that would, again, he puts at the heart of leisure worship, but it's also contemplation, prayer, um, and those things. It's interesting because there's so much discussion these days about balance. You know, it's just a matter of getting my balance between work and leisure. Uh, and yet you look at the lives of people like Pope St. John Paul, you know, who visited, I don't know how many countries, you know, he was uh, constantly on the move. And uh, his life seems not to be at all in balance, um, at least from the outside. So how can we talk about this, um, this notion of the divided life, work and leisure, 
What does that mean? And why is balance inadequate? Why do we really need to be thinking more about integration versus balance? Yeah, it's a great insight and great comment, Liz. Um, you know, balance is just kind of the overused modern world word that we think can solve most things in our lives, mm -hmm. you know, and largely what it's saying, if you think about it, the reason why we like the word balance, particularly in this modern world, we often see things out of kilter. And then balance is kind of like my ability to calculate, you know, right. oh, it's out of whack. Okay, I can just move this over here and kind of get that figured out and things of that sort. And it's really, you know, and, and it's true, sometimes we can do things through balance. But the idea of what you mentioned about the divide life is that it's not solved by me through resolving something, but rather I need a rescue, right? I mean, there's something mm -hmm. that I can't solve here, which is why the question of balance is inadequate. Actually, what balance does, if you think about it, balance often perpetuates the divided life rather than helps you to deal with it. Because if we get to the divided life, and this is uh, in Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes has an interesting line here, which says, one of the most dangerous errors of our age is the split between our professional and work lives and our religious life. Mm -hmm. And so this divided life, um, in many respects, it is a particular modern problem, but it's a deeply human problem. Yes. Uh, the word divide, as you probably know, comes from the Greek diabolic. And so the devil's the great divider. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that there's a divide that's happening in our lives um, is something that I think most people existentially feel, but maybe not always fully understand what it's about. And thus, they reach for balance as the thing that solves it. So the divided life, I, I think there's a lot of different ways of looking at it. But in the article uh, that Dave mentioned, um, I draw upon a Jewish uh, rabbi, a theologian, by the man, man named of Joseph Soloveitchik, and he writes this book called The Lonely Man of Faith. And in there, he goes back to Genesis, and he says, when you look at Genesis, we have not just one creation story, we have two. And the first one he calls Adam one, and in there you see Adam, the very active Adam, you know, Adam, the man, the maker, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, right? You're made in the image of God. Who's God? God's the actor gods of the god of abundance and he makes this world and that's what we're going to do right and there's some real truth this is why the active life is important to the christian life but then he points out that adam too is the more receptive contemplative adam man is formed in the dust and the ground he's god breathes life into the nostrils right he he takes adam he puts him in the garden he tells him to take care of it he puts adam to sleep he takes the rip all these things are being done to Adam. Mm -hmm. And so as Adam is the receiver. And what Soloveitchik says is that these two realities are, you know, not just simply two incoherent stories, but these are two realities that are in us. And Soloveitchik actually has some rather depressing, <laughs> he says there's really no resolution to it. Um, and he says you have to deal with the conflict. Whereas from a Christian perspective, we believe that Christ helps us to resolve those. But what Soloveitchik's really helpful here is that he gets away from the idea that we can resolve it. Mm -hmm. I can't resolve this conflict, right? Because, and when people, and, you know, and I meet a lot of uh, 
and they're they're good people, but they're often sometimes naive, thinking you know, uh, often executives saying, "I have integrity," and to be quite frank, they're about as deep as a puddle. You know, <laughs> they, they 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 think they do, but they really don't. It's not mm-hmm. something I have. It's not something I achieve. It's only something that I can fundamentally receive, mm-hmm. which is why the primacy of the receptive, the primacy of grace, the primacy of prayer is so critical to this. Mike, you know, I think many of us who work in the university or in education or, you know, the th- sort of the intellectual world often sort of look down and say, well, of course, those guys get it wrong. You know, they're, they're of course, trapped in this. But, but I mean, I don't get the impression that, that my colleagues or even I are necessarily any better at, at, uh, at really focusing on an integrated life. Um, it, it, may, it may be in certain ways, university life and the world of, of the intellect is even more prone to these dangers. Do you think that's, that's possible? No, I think increasingly so, Dave. I think that's um, it's partly the way the university is kind of set up. It's partly that, you know, the university, like all of us, you know, it catches the disease of the culture. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, on one hand, uh, increasingly, we're finding the kind of career credentialing careerism of uh, the pressures that's w- within the university. And so that one form of we have to justify ourselves, we have to justify liberal education, we have to justify even our own departments in terms of its ability to provide the utility and the power of our students to go on and get careers. And so we kind of fall within those trappings. So I think that's one element of it. And the second element, I think, is also that liberal education itself has become uh, corrupted by kind of a postmodern critical theory um, that largely doesn't believe that there's anything to be received and that everything is socially constructed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And thus, they've created this new form of liberal education that is is lost a sense of the receptive, has lost a sense of the contemplative. And so it's just not the big, bad, you know, STEM or business schools, but it's liberal education that has lost it. And thus everything's socially constructed, you know, we just create things. And it's, you know, in one sense, the university has become profoundly Nietzschean uh, because there's no sense that there's a created order. We're the one who creates the value. It's not something that we receive. And so I, I, I totally agree with you, Dave. One of, the, one of my favorite chapters from the book is the very last one on the power of Sunday and uh, anchoring ourselves in Sunday Sabbath is what feeds. And uh, Sunday is really a lot about receiving. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It does seem that we have to get to something more fundamental. And it's the reclaiming of, of the Lord's Day. Mm-hmm. And Liz, you know my wife very well, Teresa. A lot mm-hmm. of this comes from her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something that we learned the hard way um, uh, in our household. Because, uh, you know, uh, the Lord's Day is a commandment that a lot of us tend to, you know, of all the Ten Commandments, that one we seem to, we get pretty loose on. You know, we don't see it as one of the big ten. Mm-hmm. I often say that if I treated uh, adultery, like I treated, you know, the <laughs> Sabbath. Day. Exactly. You know, I said, honey, I tried it this week. I didn't, you know, try, you know, do that commandment on do not commit adultery. It didn't quite work. I'll try it next week. Okay. You know, and yeah. of course you can imagine what that would do to marriage. Sure. Right. And yet we sometimes, 
get a little flippant, we often see the Lord's day as the Lord's hour. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, I got mass and dime. Okay, you know? yeah. But I, I, I run my day, and I used to do that all the time. I used to get up, and I would get a bunch of work done before the kids would get up. And it started to kind of create some real dysfunctions in our household and in our relationships. And uh, for a variety of different reasons, uh, Teresa and I said, you know, we we gotta. This is something we gotta take more seriously. And and it's not like we got it the first time around. You know, we're constantly trying to renew ourselves with it. We fall into little trappings here and there, and we say, okay, time to renew, time to renew. But I do think the Lord's Day is that day that we need to enter into the day with new kind of habits that are different than the other six days. Not that the other six days are bad, not that work and consumption and technology is all a problem, but those things are always in danger of claiming us completely. Mm Mm-hmm. And what the Jews understood, and this is why we often have to look to the Jews, you think about someone like Abraham Joshua Heschel and his work on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's almost a must-read for us Catholics because they, they've been at it. As, as somebody once said, it's not that the Jews keep the Sabbath, but it's the Sabbath that keeps the Jews. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same thing for us Catholics. It's not that we have to keep the Lord's Day as Catholics, but the Lord's Day keeps us. Mm-hmm. It keeps our marriages ordered, it keeps our family ordered, and it keeps our work in its proper place. Well, it's interesting. The, yeah, good. The, well, the, pre, you know, the precepts of the church that people talk about, one of them is basically keeping, keeping the Lord's Day and Holy Days. And most people, as you say, think about it only in terms of that hour of going to Mass. And it's the second part of abstaining from servile labor uh, you know, that work that is done to, to make our money uh, that everybody kind of ignores. And yet the opposite of servile, right, slave-like is free. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that's, that's, that's the key here, isn't it? Yeah, exactly right. It's that which frees us. As the founding program of the Catholic Studies Movement in Higher Education, St. Thomas Catholic Studies is internationally recognized for its integrated, Christ-centered approach to exploring 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture. We provide a range of undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as professional development opportunities, all to help you integrate faith into your academic and professional pursuits. Catholic intellectual exploration or career preparation Choose both. Visit stthomas.edu backslash Catholic Studies to learn about our online, on-ground, and hybrid educational options so you can learn and grow wherever you need to be. So what does that Sunday look like then? What are the new habits that you've taken up as a family? Yeah, and and one thing I want to be clear here, I'll, I'll certainly give you some of the things that we've done, but I do think this can be done in a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. depending on one's state of life and things of that sort. So when we move to the forms, we know that we're moving to something that where you can have real plurality here. Um, but I do think, you know, in the book, I talk about three habits. Uh, and the first is the habit of silence. And I think sometimes we have to enter into the Lord's Day in silence um, and to take that time for silence. And for me, it's, you know, a lot of times I get up early and it's just taking that time where I'm, I'm just trying, I, I often just just say the Jesus prayer, you know, and, and doing Lecto Divina and trying to hear what the Lord wants to tell us, things of that sort. Uh, obviously, see, all, 
that that the heart of the Lord's Day is always going to be the celebration, um, and in terms of uh, of the Mass, and that is it's it's a very important hour of the Lord's Day, and we never want to lose sight of that. But sometimes it could be a walk, right? Uh, Sometimes uh, Teresa has a whole um, closet full of games. You know, and taking time to play, mm-hmm. particularly if you have kids, um, and and taking that time, um, and sometimes, and this I didn't always do this well, but you know, it's also the question of fraternity, and when possible to serve the poor, uh, and that means very broadly, right? It means the lonely people at the church you go to, the single single elderly people to invite them over for. Uh, for brunch, um, of course, that's more difficult right now. But as times, you know, things will change, and we'll try to get back to that. It's calling, you know, sometimes to quite frank, my family members who um, I don't talk to very often, and it's very easy not to talk to them, you know. Mm-hmm. And and it's reaching out to them. Uh, so that idea of silence, celebration, fraternity could be three habits of saying, how are those habits placed in this day? Um, and also thinking about play. Uh, and I think key thing, and again, this is a hard one, is, uh, and I love this phrase, becoming a techno-sabbatarian, mm-hmm. you know, uh, break away from the technology, break away from the phone, break away. And that doesn't mean you totally have to do nothing with it, you know, watching a good movie or watching part of a, you know, part of a game. But, you know, I think the games, particularly watching the games, kind of suck us into things that actually become very debilitating. You know, watching too many football games is not going to be really going to get at the heart of what you want to do here. Um, <laughs> it's probably better to go play a football game with your kids rather than go watch it. Um, but anyhow, it, there's, those forms can take a lot of different things in terms of what the family's about. You know, I think there could be a kind of uh, easy way of thinking about this. Well, it's just a sort of break. I go off. I do something else. But I mean, it's it. what you're talking about is much deeper than simply sort of distracting myself from this, you know, the, the day-to-day grind and doing something else. It, it, it really is connected to that receptivity, isn't it? Oh, totally. And you know, you know who's really good on this? Uh, if there's one thing for further reading, uh, John Paul II, his uh, apostolic letter, Deis Domine, and just read the first chapter. I mean, it is so rich and so deep. And by the way, it was actually John Paul. I mean, John, when I, I read John Paul's Laborum Exertions, which is on human work, it was a 1981 document. And that got me into this whole field of, what, of, of a kind of theology of work. But it was very interesting. When I read Day's Domine, I knew it was the other bookend. You know, there's two bookends here. And, and that document, is I, I would say kind of a must-read for the reclaiming of Sunday, and again, days dominate the Lord's day. Yeah, and um, and and as as Dave said, it provides uh, a deep richness about how we enter into this day, um, which actually, as Dave mentioned, frees us, and then it helps us to order the rest of our week. You know the. We can we can talk about this as the the, the foundation for having this sort of integrated life, uh, but you know you mentioned Catholic studies and our approach. We also value though professional education. Should professional education include 
Sabbath lessons? <laughs> um, <laughs> what, should, what should a professional education that is training people to get work right do? Or what should it, uh, what should it inculcate besides what we're doing right now? Well, great point. Uh, and, and Dave, you remember when, uh, you know, when we started Catholic Studies, we never wanted to see Catholic Studies as simply a kind of enclave within the humanities. Right. We always wanted to see it in its relationship to the unity of knowledge, and the unity included the liberal ed- or, or professional education. Just like when Newman started his university in Ireland, he had a medical school, a, a law school, a school of commerce. And so our educational project needs to understand that liberal education in its relationship uh, to professional education is where that deepest sense of integration comes about. And as Liz mentioned, right, it's integration, not a balance. So that is, if, if an education can create the habits of mind that is profoundly liberal in the liberal education and, and also profoundly professional, that becomes a place where that integration can come, come take place. And what's interesting is um, for those in the professional fields, there's some really interesting models out there. I mean, everyone knows about Chick-fil-A, right? I mean, yeah. it's a very, I mean, most people would say, oh gosh, fast food restaurants can't close on Sundays. And, and they were really bold in doing something. And they're even a publicly traded company. But the founder recognized something that was really different here. There's a professional life will recognize that this person has another life, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and and that could be in all sorts of, you know, that we have good maternity leave, right? That you have, you know, good benefits that recognizes the importance of the family, that you don't expect people to work on Sundays yeah. and thus you don't work on Sundays. And that's where some of these models have come about, uh, which I think fine, you know, I think are very, very helpful. But we have turned in a lot of professional life uh, to a kind of a career-driven, career-mad focus um, that has lost sight of that there's a life outside of work. Can you give some concrete examples then of what getting work right looks like in an organization? Yeah. So um, maybe you could start by saying how they get it wrong. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of, and and you know what, Liz, I'm glad you raised that because there's so much going right here. Mm. And we never, I mean, we want to talk about the problems, um, but there's there's a great, um, there's a great amount of things that are going on right out there. And and one of the things I do is I draw upon a document that I actually help work on for the Vatican um, called the vocation of the business leader. And in there, it speaks about uh, the goods that business does. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the good that business does? And it talks about it in terms of three goods. So it talks about good goods, good work, good wealth. And one of the things that business does is it provides goods and services for society. And most of us just take it for granted. You know, I, I'm the board chair of a manufacturing company here in the Twin Cities called Rael. And when I first met the founder, a guy named Bob Walsh, one of the best businessmen I know, just a beautiful, wonderful man, um, he told me, he says, you know, uh, we and the company, by the way, it makes hinges, and it's a torque technology company. And so if you have a laptop computer, we used to, we used to be big in the laptop market. You know, anything that has what they call small torque, is those are the hinges that they make. 
And he said to me, he says, you know, I, I kind of wish we didn't make hinges. I kind of wish we made like pacemakers, like that which saves people's lives. Wouldn't that be <laughs> great? You know, and Medtronic has these um, Christmas gatherings where they bring in people who they put a pacemaker and they talk about how their lives have been changed, mm -hmm. right? So making pacemakers is great. But, you know, the obvious question, and it was the question, it was the question I threw to Bob. He said, well, what if everybody made pacemakers? You know, mm -hmm. we need hinges, mm -hmm. we need screws, we need carpet, we need, you know, we need concrete, we need drywall, we need, there are so many things books. that makes the world, books, <laughs> that makes the world go. Right. We need accountants, we need people in finance. If you don't have these things, making pacemakers falls apart. Yeah. And so the idea is that there is so much good going out there that we often underestimated. We have, we have dismissed the nobility of the mundane. Mm -hmm. And we have to recapture the nobility of the mundane and that we can have a vocation even in those things that look mundane because it's needed, mm -hmm. right? Now, uh, you know, think about what we've done with food. You know, we pay less for food than probably any other generation in the history of the world because they have really provided great efficiencies in terms of the logistics of growing and delivering and transporting food. Now, one of the dangers that's happened there is that there's been these things called external um, or negative externalities that we've also run into the problem of obesity, soil erosion, and things of that sort. But that's normal. Now the question is, can we solve those problems that we've created. So we've, we've done some good, but even in the good, we, we're living in a fallen world. How do we solve that? So that's, that's happening there. It's happening in the question of good work. You know, Can we provide people with good jobs where they can l utilize the skills and the talents they have in the work that they're doing? You know, maybe, so th those are just some examples. Yeah. I mean, maybe one, maybe one way of thinking about problems of the divided life, even with people who are very serious about their faith, is not, not, taking, for, uh, you know, not taking it as a reality that that, that mundane world can be a, an area in which they can sort of bring good things to people that are, are necessary. Mm -hmm. um, that it's we don't a way all, of sanctification, yeah. the mundane, yeah. We don't, all ha we, don't, we don't all have to be, you know, priests or ministers, you know, or doing explicitly sort of religious work. Yeah, that's a great point, Dave. And, and you know, again, John Paul, you know, what did he do? He, he's, he's canonized and beatified more saints um, than any pope, for, you know, combined for the last thousand years, right? Mm -hmm. And who is, he, who is he putting forward to, right? He's, you know, people in politics, people in economics, people in business, people who are working in the mundane world to show that we can live our vocation and sanctify the world that we're called to do in all sorts of arenas. And yes, the religious life, the priestly life, right, are, are, are extraordinary calls. But, you know, ordinary in the Catholic, you know, lingo is not a bad thing. We have ordinary time, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the lay people is often the, and Balthasar speaks about this as, it, it is in a sense, the, the um, I wouldn't say, it's almost like the default, you know, 
most people will live a lay life. Mm -hmm. The religious and priestly life is of a different nature. It, it calls for an extraordinary call, but it, it should never be done in such a way that it demeans the ordinary life that we have moved into. Well, this is a, this is a great sort of place to, to come to our ending because what you're talking about is the possibility of getting work right in all forms of life, in all callings. Um, could, do you have any, uh, any further resources that, uh, that uh, you could give to us that we could include in our show notes? Yeah, I think um, the document by the Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development um, has a document called The Vocation of the business leader. And I think it's a, it's a good document. Um, uh, it's been translated into over 15 different languages. Um, and it's a document that's used in business schools as well as faith and work groups. Um, and so I, I find that document very helpful. And, and I'll just re-mention, I think John Paul II, Deis Domine, um, the first chapter, uh, really just lays out this beautiful thing about the Lord's Day, which I think captures. And of course, Joseph Pieper, Leisure, the Basis of Culture, it's a classic. And um, it's, it just is, uh, it's what a Catholic mind, it's how a Catholic mind should think about things. And we should look for Mike's article on the two atoms also available in Logos. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us for another great episode of Deep Down Things, a partnership between Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. I'm Dave Devil with Liz Kelly. We've been talking to Mike Naughton, director of the Center for Catholic Studies and the author of Getting Work Right. We hope that you'll visit our website, patreon.com backslash deep down things. That's one word, no spaces, deep down things to become a patron of the show and continue the conversation. 